0: lives there for eight years and they are incredibly productive. As soon as she gets there, really, um, she gets out all her old manuscripts. It, it has been found. You know, that there's Merkers mine and there's other examples of individuals finding gold in, showing up sort of decades later. It's not impossible. Some other sources, which again are all kind of murky, hold that La Pellegrina was not actually discovered until the 1570s. So it could not possibly have been the pearl that Philip gave to Mary. When she's
1: refusing to get married, um, she... Just stands up and says, I don't want to be used by a man the way a peasant uses his field. What's really fascinating about this piece is that it, it looks on the surface a bit quite simple. It's got a
0: sort of geometric design on all four faces of the pyramids. But when you really look closely at it, the, the design of it is completely staggering. Welcome to History Gems, where in today's episode, we've got the truly unique and extraordinary story of a family business. Kaczynski's. Here to tell us more is Serena Kaczynski, a senior writer and editor who has worked everywhere from the Sunday Times to BBC News and is just about to take up a new role as editorial director at Joe Media. Serena is also the daughter of the famed jeweller Paul Kaczynski. The story of my father and his egg, the fact that he made
1: the world's largest jewelled egg, I suppose the passion and interest in that came first. The Kaczynski family business is something that I grew up with. And like many things, when you're a child, you just don't fully, your eyes aren't fully open to the value of what you're experiencing. You know, I mean, I grew up learning about the primary colors by my dad talking me through rubies, diamonds, sapphires and emeralds on his knee in the shop.
0: She's currently working on her first book, which tells the story of how her father came to create the world's largest Fabergé-style jeweled egg, as well as charting the history of her prestigious family firm, the House of Kaczynski. Welcome to History Gems, Serena, and it's a huge privilege to be talking to you today, especially because the subject of the podcast is one that's so personal to you. Yes. Hi, Nicola. Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, Yes, it is. It's the
1: story of my family. Um, It's the story of my father. And I guess in many ways, it's the story of um, my search for understanding and connection with my heritage and also a desire to um, sort of restore my father's
0: legacy, if you like, if that doesn't sound too grand. No, no, not at all. And it's a really fascinating story. And you and I have spoken a bit about this before. But for the purpose or the the benefit of our listeners, um, let's start by Talking a bit about how or where your interest came from. I mean, obviously, you've you've grown up with um, with this the knowledge that your family have got this incredible story. But have you always been interested in in finding out more about that, or has that been more of a recent thing? You know, I studied history at university, and I'm a journalist, so you know,
1: investigating ideas and stories is is what I do. Um, And it's the way my brain works. So the story of my father and his egg, the fact that he made the world's largest jeweled egg, I suppose the passion and interest in that came first. The Kaczynski family business is something that I grew up with. And like many things, when you're a child, you just don't fully, your eyes aren't fully open to the value of what you're experiencing. You know, I mean, I grew up learning about the primary colors by my dad talking me through rubies diamonds sapphires and emeralds on his knee in the shop um you know and having these packets of precious stones sort of open on the desk in front of me and and that was just normal I know it sounds crazy but like that was our normal lived experience um and then um you know when when the the business was sold in 91 and we stopped having that association there was a lot of sadness there really um so I think I sort of disconnected from it for a bit. And I, and I always wanted to be a writer and a journalist anyway, so I knew that was my path in life. Um, but the story of my dad and his egg, uh, particularly after he tragically died when I was 20, I just started telling it again. I didn't tell it for a long time, disconnected from that too. Um, and then, yeah, I started telling it at like parties, <laughs> um, you know, or late at night when I met a boy and wanted to tell them a funny story you know <laughs> um that's just how it started and and I and I sort of realized you know god this is just kind of like this crazy mad story and it and it and it did bring my father closer and it was a way you know of you know particularly if the boys were going to be serious boyfriends um <laughs> of yeah introducing them to him and showing them pictures and and I began to build up like a sort of collection of memorabilia around it and stuff that I just sort of kept in my you know my keepsakes boxes or whatever um and then I don't to be honest I don't actually know how it happened I it's not that I thought oh I, I hadn't consciously thought I'm gonna pitch this I'm gonna pitch this feature idea but one day in an editorial meeting at the Sunday Times where I was working at the time I think I just hadn't got any ideas for these really scary meetings They're were around the table with a big editor at the end. And I was quite, you know, I was sort of like midway. Uh, you know, I wasn't a very senior at that point. So they were scary. <laughs> and um, yeah, normally I had loads of ideas, but I think that week I just didn't. So I just thought, you know, whatever, I'm just going to try um, this idea out. And I said it, and I said, oh, you know, the tagline that it's now become that my dad made the world's largest jeweled egg, which is true. Um, And the editor was like, oh my God, brilliant story. You must write this. So, you know, thank you to her for that support. Um, And I remember coming out and like phoning my mum and my mum being like, what? (laughs) So then I wrote the article and it got brilliant reaction and I got interest from a book agent. And I suppose, you know, then it, then I began to realise that it wasn't just this sort of 3,000-word story of how my dad made an egg, you know, an amazing egg, but it was actually the 100-year story, if not more, of a family, of a family business that started um, when they arrived as immigrants fleeing the pogroms um, from Poland in 1893 and started out to set up a shop in the East End, um you know my grandfather had a real creative vision and was a fantastic salesman and that combination of flair and savvy kind of you know brought him great wealth and success and there were there were a lot of jewelers um in the east end in those days but Kaczynski became the one that everyone went to to get their engagement rings apparently due to my grandfather um having this sort of clever marketing idea in the 30s that what he would do would be allow um, expectant brides to come into the shop with their mothers or even their mother-in-laws and take an engagement ring home to try on, to show to the other half on trial. And they might be gone for like a week or something basically. And apparently um, this brilliant, uh, the former foreman of their workshop, who is fantastic. And he, I, I was listening to the audio, that interview that I did with him the other day. He said, oh, you know, No, nobody else did it. Fishburts didn't do it. No one else did it. Joe Kaczynski did it. He did it. And that's what, you know, built their reputation. So my grandfather wanted it to be far more than just a place where people came to get an engagement ring. You know, he wanted to sell to English aristocracy, you know, jet set clients, etc. So he moved it to Knightsbridge right next to Harrods. And it became, you know, as Amanda Triosi said in an interview to me, the British equivalent of Cartier. Absolutely incredible. Um, Towards the end of the 20th century, Um, you know, and sort of then the 80s and the um, explosion of oil in the Middle East in wealth that brought a huge boom. And we moved into objet. So we were doing sort of fantastic traditional jewellery. And then my father took over and started doing more objet, which obviously was the beginning of the genesis for the egg. Eventually, in 1990, he makes this egg. Um, it's incredible, two foot tall, gold, 24,000 diamonds using Argyle's pink diamonds. These are pink diamonds from a, a mine in Western Australia. They've now, um, they, they finished mining this year, so there's none, none of these diamonds being produced anymore. They're incredibly valuable. But at the time, they weren't known. So they wanted a showcase for their pink diamonds. And my father wanted a partner for the egg. So it was sort of a a perfect marriage at that time. But tragically, the egg at the time for various reasons, which we can go into later, didn't sell. And my father had invested so much money in making Mm. it. Just all the, you know, the workmanship of it was divine. It was this incredible piece of British craftsmanship. I mean, it was valued at 7 million at the time when it was being sold around the world. And that was in 1990 and it just didn't sell and the business for you know that and other reasons just couldn't take the strain and it was sold and then my father's my parents marriage collapsed as a result and um you know and he had an affair um which caused a lot of pain uh and then a decade later he died so Like I said, um, the egg was always associated when I was growing up um, with a lot of like loss for us. And it really took me sitting down to write that article when I was in my sort of early 30s to begin to see it as a positive thing, as an incredible thing, as a lost legacy, not just to our family, but to the British Isles as well. I mean, it was, you know, it would be, I've spoken to experts in the industry who say effectively, the techniques and traditions used to create it are just not, you know, they're, they're not being practiced in workshops anymore. And even though there are a few remaining practitioners, they're all, you know, sort of, a, you know, towards their 60s, 70s, etc. And the, there aren't any apprentices coming up. So the techniques and traditions that were made used to make the Argyle Library by
0: Kaczynski are you know almost extinct there you go that's kind of the nutshell wow Uh, there's there's so much there's so much to unpick there and there's so much in that story and of course I want to come back to your father and the egg but I sort of just want to go back to the beginning a bit if we can because I think originally when um when your family came over to the East End from Poland, I don't think they were destined for the East End or for London at all, were they?
1: No, they weren't. Um, They had, like a lot of Jewish families, the story in ours always was that um, they were bound for New York for uh, a new Mm. life in America. Um, And um, they took the ship from... They managed to travel by train from... um, where they were in Gruboff, I think it was, a small town on the Polish-German border. Uh, And they managed to make it to Berlin, basically, which you could do, I think, without having to have full papers, because obviously you're fleeing from the pogroms, Mm. fleeing persecution. And then what what I've sort of deduced is Mm. most likely to have occurred is that they bought tickets from Hamburg to um, what they thought was New York. But a lot of Jews in that period didn't have the right documentation to buy like legit tickets, basically. So they were forced onto the black market and it was on the black market that they encountered scammers. So there were scammers operating and it's very, very likely that this is what happened to my great grandfather, Hirsch, and his wife, Leah. Um, And they spent all their savings on these steamer tickets that they thought and were told was going to take them to New York. And it turned out it was only going to take them as far as London. So I've thought many times about, you know, how did they feel when the ship docked in London's sort of dirty docklands, as it was then, and they, you know, and the sort of order came to disembark the ship and they're standing there going like, what's happening? Apparently lots of um so, people dealt with it in different ways. Some people were just in shock. Other people stood on the docks overnight, um, thinking that another boat was going to come and sort of not just not being able to process what was happening. Um, my family uh, were lucky because, were luckier, I suppose, than some because they would already become jewelers in Poland and they just had uh, sort of the lucky break, if you like, and were. Um, making jewels so this is like family mythology yeah. but it's what's been passed on to me making jewels um for the court of uh King Ludwig of Bavaria at this point who I think i yeah. been referred to as the Mad King so uh yes so they were doing that and had some jewels and stones diamonds um to take with them which I you know, the sort of family mythology, again, is that my great great grandmother sewed the stones into her clothes, um, as was sort of common practice at the time to avoid detection during the journey to keep them safe. So when they arrived in London, they they were in a, you know, a terrible situation and in shock and denial, I think. But they, um, they had some means of kind of Feeding and putting a roof over them, and it wasn't just them. It was my great grandfather was twelve at the time, and he was with them as well. Um, And I thought, I thought a lot about that. I mean, you know, they, um, they, the ship came into St Catherine's Dock, which is where, when I was working at the Sunday Times, when I first wrote the article, was where our offices were. And I never knew, you know. And I've thought back on it so many times, like the amount of times that I would take, you know, what was sort of like the scenic route to work just through the docks, through the cobbled streets, past the restaurants, not knowing really the history of the docks at that time, and not knowing that that's where they had come, you know, where they'd stood and kind of dealt with that, like, where are we, what's happening? They had nothing, lost everything, you know, risked their lives to escape pretty much. Um, And, you know, here I am, you know, living thanks to them, really, thanks to their sacrifice. an incredible life and of, you know, a very comfortable, happy life and able to tell their story. So, yeah, it's really interesting uh, kind of thinking about that immigrant experience and transposing your own um, contemporary experience onto it, I think was really fascinating. Um, Yeah, so they got off the, they arrived, um, they arrived on the ship from Hamburg, they had nothing. Um, They lived, they got lodgings in in the in the heart of the slum at first in Whitechapel they did eventually in the 30s when things were going better with the shop move out to Stoke Newington first again where I lived as an adult where actually my A first child it is. so funny yes and so then the I think you know that jewelry was what they did from what I know um Hirsch started working at his kitchen table they started just He was um, repairing silverware for other fellow travelers that had been damaged um, in the journey and watches, just kind of, you know, doing what you can to survive, I I think. Um, And then the first shop was in uh, 19, so between 1910 and 1914 on Cannon Street. And then in 1914 or 15, they moved to Commercial Road. And that was the shop that really began to get to build a reputation in the East End. Um, and that, and they also started working with, um, a workshop, Sannett and Stein workshop that became sort of their. where well, they worked exclusively with Kaczynski for half a century and Len Sannett who ran it was a really good friend, oh. a childhood friend of my grandfather's basically, um, Yeah. And he, um, they'd known each other growing up in the East End, you know, since as kids. And then Len went off to, well, they all, they went off to war in second world war. Len went off to, um, ended up in Alamine. That's a whole nother story. And, um, my grandfather, um, wasn't able to serve on the front line due to his sort of his German ancestry as well. I think his mother was German. Um, so he, um, I have to actually check what he did, but he—I think he worked in the <laughs> in the hospital, the medical corps. That was it. So my grandfather was in the medical corps during World War ii and Len was off in Al Alamine, uh, at Al Alamine. Um, anyway, they came—they came back from the war and they met up again. And apparently, Len had started doing um, some repairs at his kitchen table, his mother's kitchen table actually. And his mother was so desperate to get Len out from uh, from under her feet in the kitchen table that she went up to Joe. My grandfather and was like, right, Joe, I'm gonna do a deal with you on behalf of my son. Uh, you know, Len and his Len will make jewelry only for you, only for kaczynski Um, <laughs> you know, just get him out from my kitchen table, effect. So they so they formed a partnership and they had a workshop across the street from them on commercial road. Um, and things started to um really go well for them. The economy started to recover. My grandfather had Joe had come and um, taken over. That started working in the business when he was 14. Left school at 14, became an apprentice at the bench, learned everything. My his father Moisha was very religious, and even though he'd grown the business a bit, he wasn't really interested in taking it up the next gear. It took my grandfather kind of having that kind of savvy and ambition mm. to really push it, basically. Then obviously had to take a bit of a break, but they managed. The wow. shop managed to survive the Blitz. Um, and the business was kind of paused um, for as long as possible. Uh, And, I mean, all sorts of dramatic things had happened as well. His brother, Solly, um, my great uncle, he was over in Belgium um, working as a diamond dealer, so effectively getting the the business and bringing them back. Um, You know, in 1939, when things were looking really, really bad for the Jews in Belgium, effectively, or across Europe as a whole, um, my grandfather, Joe, had to pull strings to try and get his brother out, basically, so Solly and his wife Hannah got out on the last boat that's this is yeah you know, that's what I've, this is what we've always been told. They got out on the last boat to leave Belgium, the last ferry um and made it back to Britain safely.
0: What a relief. Um, I know,
1: yeah, and then and then Solly came into the business with Joe. And worked and helped him and supported him sort of ran ran the back office I think a lot and kind of dealt with a lot of the local clients as they after they moved to the West End but
0: yeah
1: yeah so it's very much a family business um and and also like Len Len Sanet and Nat Stein who ran the workshop they became like family as oh, well I and mean, they were great friends for half a century um and together they you know once the war was over they managed to regroup the economy started to recover in the 50s. Um, you know, for a long time, the taxes on luxury goods were really, really high. So the market was just dead, but it, it started to recover. And that's when Kaczynski started to move into making kind of what what was known at the time as fine art jewellery. So it was seen as being, yeah. um, you know, high end, but not Hot couture I suppose so not completely extravagantly expensive accessible but you know used gold fine gold textured gold a mix of precious and semi-precious stones uh it was very innovative and bold and colourful um but, you know, but also from a very tr- fine mm. fine art mm. jewellery tradition, basically. So they started to get a bit of a reputation for that. And at the time, in the 50s, lots of Americans had started coming to Britain to buy jewellery or stopping off on the way over to the continent and then would buy their jewellery. So that became a sort of boom market for them. Um And then in 1958, they moved out of the East End to the West End and the workshop moved with them. So Kaczynski's shop went into Knightsbridge on Brompton Road, right next to Harrods, which was a brilliant spot, again,
0: for getting the tourist trade. Huge transition as well from the East End. Unbelievable. I mean, I look back on it and I'm
1: overwhelmed. And I think, you know, God, my grandfather was, you know, I just remember him, you know, as as an old man. But I've seen video footage of him as this kind of young, handsome dynamic man you know incredibly creative like his designs are incredible you know and today at auctions it's the the Kaczynski pieces from the 60s 70s that are the most in demand and those were you know him and him with you know and made by the Sanat and Stein workshop so it is incredible now that I've started to you know learn all about it Um, so they made the transition and they got this kind of like fabulously glamorous showroom with chandeliers and carpet with blue and gold case crisscrossing and kind of renaissance style furniture you know it, it I mean it didn't change much over the years so my memories of it are very clear um <laughs> but it was it was glorious I think my grandmother sort of you know she did a lot of the design on it um yeah and and really and then the Jewelry historians I've spoken to about this say it's it's interesting because as with everything, timing is always a you know, timing is so important. And at that point, you know, the youth quake yeah. was happening um in society, in culture, in fashion, and in jewelry, and the sort of traditional uh, roles where it would only you know it would be the aristocracy who would be able to afford expensive luxury items well actually for the first time you had a kind of celebrities and young people and the it crowd an explosion of that and people wanting things that were a bit avant-garde and broke with tradition and so Kaczynski managed to um, sort of really f- slide into that niche and if you look at some of the pieces the signature pieces from this time you've got these sort of fabulous animal. Um, animal pieces, so a tiger brooch, for example, with kind of onyx and gold, um, parrots uh, with colorful stones, amethyst diamonds, uh, really kind of bold pendants with coral and enamel. There was a lot of use of enamel and colored gold. Really fascinating,
0: really, wow. really distinctive. And um, and where where could people see some of these pieces now if they wanted to see them? Or can they, so can they not? So they're mainly
1: on all, you know, you, I mean, if you want to buy them, obviously, I suppose you go to an auction. But also I've started an Instagram yeah. to try and, um, you know, sort of pay tribute and. Uh, bring bring them back into the public eye if you like um, featuring lots of pieces mm-hmm. so it's House at, House of Kaczynski um, you know and of course if people want to follow that would be fantastic um, but that's the aim of the yeah. account really is to kind of tell the story of the brand and to show showcase some of the most exquisite pieces um, but there's a playfulness to the jewelry that my grandfather um, really worked on which i think is really distinctive actually and it gives it that kind of accessibility i think it doesn't fit you know they don't feel like crown jewels that can only be touched um you know once a year or are so heavy and unpleasant to wear that you want to take them off my grandmother would always say to me that yeah. the safest place for jewelry is on you wear
0: it. <laughs> That's wear, it wear it every day
1: wear it every day and i think kaczynski jewelry is in that you know obviously it is special and splendid and glorious but it can also be you know you could wear a brooch to the office or you can wear i mean i have um i have a family heirloom from the 70s as my engagement ring and um it's an emerald which is just beautiful never you know amazing stone the purity of it's stunning but it's got two diamonds next to it which are heart-shaped and actually i i wore the ring for quite oh. a while before i noticed that the diamonds were heart-shaped um and it's just those sort of those fun humorous elements and notes that i think you can see running through it um which is you know which is very which is very distinctive and which i think is now adding it sort of adding adds the value at auction now
0: yeah would you say i mean i i'm guessing this is (laughs) this is probably a bit of a dumb question but i was going to ask you what your favorite piece was but I suppose it it would be your engagement ring (laughs) yes um yes and no actually I mean
1: that's an interesting question I think I mean actually my favorite piece is something that my father made um after Kaczynski was sold so I don't know if that counts but it's yeah so he then the business was sold but he carried on working in jewelry for the decade until he um sadly passed away, and uh, he started a new firm under his name, Paul Kaczynski Limited, and after the egg, I mean, my father was, you know, he was an artist jeweler. he was a creative, um, he was a Pisces, I don't know, you know, we care about astrology, but he was a dreamer, <laughs> he was a romantic, and he he always had a big idea, that was what excited him, you know, I actually, I asked someone the other day, you know, who was close to him at the time, if he was after the egg, if he was sad, that you know that it hadn't sold or you know how he saw it did he see it as a failure or a success effectively and I mean because it did eventually sell but that was later um, and she said that um, no he was so proud of it for him it was about the making you know he'd made it he did it he had the world record for the world's largest jewel deck um, that was his creation and I think that in his psychology that's what was important to him you know so yeah. so anyway so he developed a new obsession which was um, to allow diamonds to sparkle as fully as they could because you know obviously in most jewelry diamonds are set um, in metal as we know and obviously you know there yes. are really innovative settings and lots of different types of settings um, but they're still set so my father wanted to Find a way of allowing diamonds to well diamonds and all precious stones to be unset in jewelry, Um, which sounds basically impossible. But um, but he did he did find a way. Um, The solid rock line it was called at the time. And um, what I have is a pendant with um, a heart of diamonds. It's a circular pendant with a heart of diamonds. Um, on a gold chain and the diamonds are basically suspended in um, an invisible glue, holds them in place and so between the two panes of glass you can see every single um, side and surface of the stones and the way they sparkle is just truly amazing, Um, like nothing I've ever seen and my mum gave it to me on my wedding day.
0: Oh, oh, that's such a lovely story. And it sounds like such a beautiful piece. I love that. I love the story behind that. That's wonderful. Um, Now, let's talk a bit more about your father, if that's okay, Mm -hmm. and talk about the the egg. And what do you think inspired him? Where do you think that the idea for this came from? So, yeah, it's interesting because,
1: you know, in many ways, there's growing up, there's been the emotional question for me of like, why did he do it? And that's part of what I want to understand, writing the book. Um, But now I, uh, you know, now I've become a sort of jewellery investigator, I suppose, if you like. I have um, (laughs) thought about the sort of the genesis of the idea in terms of its its jewellery origins. And I can see when I look at the history of the firm, the trend that took my father down that path if you like. So if you consider that my grandfather had established Kaczynski as a really successful, one of London's top jewelers, um, but effectively what they made at that time were was traditional jewelry, you know, brooches, bracelets, necklace, earrings, the odd tiara. Um, that's what they did they did it really, really well. Um, so my father wanted to do something a bit different and, you know, being, sort of creative dreamer and being a child of the 60s and 70s which he un, you know fully was long hair hippie at the time you know at university all of that <laughs> um he wanted to do something different and he wanted to sort of become a jeweler artist and be seen in that way in the mold of Carl Fabergé who was always one of his personal heroes I mean you know he was obsessed with Fabergé Fabergé was a hero in their household for him growing up you know because the Russian origins, um, what he achieved, Fabergé being the founder of the world's first luxury brand, you know, I guess other kids have Superman, my dad had Fabergé, (laughs) Um, yeah, so he was, he was deeply, deeply interested in, in the tradition of Objet d'Art, and that was the direction when he took over Kaczynski in the early 80s, when his father sort of went to semi-retirement, um, that he wanted to take the business in, and that obviously again coincided with the, you know, with the wealth of the the new wealth in the Middle East, and um, you know, princes coming over from their, you know, wealthy clients coming over from the Middle East, and they wanted to buy jewels for their wives, for their palaces, for their private jets, and they also wanted things to decorate these spaces, you know, royal treasures effectively. Um, so it's this tradition in which my father's aware of Kaczynski started making small um, small things in this of this nature we made gold dice golden diamond dice we made a golden gun with a sort of um, emerald tiger we made enamel clocks and they were all made to order items apparently there was even a pair of ruby and diamond handcuffs for one of the kinkier clients Um, oh gosh (laughs) I know love it uh oh, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Valentine's <laughs> Day for someone, a gift for someone I presume. I've heard it all now. Yeah. <laughs> so there were all these sort of fabulous items and they, you know, they're one off pieces that would sell for a lot more than, you know, than your traditional necklaces, etc. You know, you could make at least sort of um oh, gosh, you know, I wouldn't I don't know exactly, but I imagine up to six figures on a single item rather than, you know, sort of Thousand here, thousand there, ten thousand there, twenty thousand on a necklace, etc. So, wow. yeah, so the stakes were higher, but the the profits were higher. So he's, there was sort of at the time, you know, there were two people really making this kind of objet d'art in Britain. It was John Asprey of Asprey's and Paul Kaczynski, my father. Um, and in 1986, uh, it was the first exhibition of Fabergé's treasures that had ever been shown you know outside the USSR as it was then outside Russia the former Soviet Union and my father according to my mother was absolutely adamant that they had to go you know it was like a pilgrimage it was going to be held in Munich so you know and they had my sisters my my sisters and I and my younger sister would have been one at that time actually no she wasn't born it was February sorry So um, anyway, so the exhibition was held in Munich and my parents had to fly over and my father was absolutely adamant that they were going to go and that mum had to come with him. So they went um, and they saw it, you know, and he was incredibly inspired to see, you know, the, the sort of incredibly intricate, beautiful work of his of his hero effectively and to actually see it up close. And it was in the um, famous beer hall in Munich where Hitler did his putsch in 1936, actually, where my father mm. had the idea for the egg. Um, you know, him, my mother was sort of sitting in this crowded beer hall, having to shout at each other over the din. And, you know, he said, oh, I've got an idea. And as I've told you, my father was, a, you know, he was an ideas guy. Um, yeah. So I think at first my mother thought, oh, gosh, you know, another of Paul's crazy ideas. But um, This one wasn't just an idea that he would forget about. It was an idea that became an obsession. Um, You know, he was going to build the world's biggest Faberge egg. You know, he would be the modern day Carl Faberge. And, you know, and he did it. So that was in 86 um, when he had the idea. And for a while, it stayed an idea, you know, they had another baby that's, They had three children, then business is busy, um, we were hosting polo days, you know, the, the profile of Kaczynski was growing. Um, both nationally and internationally. Um, yeah, I have fond memories of. Uh, polo days and at one point I think we played against Prince Charles's team I think we beat him which was a which was a fun moment
0: incredible <laughs> um,
1: I think Princess Diana was there to present the trophy um so there were pictures of that uh yeah it was it was a it was a it was a um kind of yeah quite a very idyllic and kind of privileged childhood when I look back now um but very glamorous and yes, yeah. uh, yeah, so, so we were very busy. And then my dad um was working with the with diamond dealers, the Vayner Brothers. Okay, yeah. And they in from Hatton Garden, and they had a relationship with Argyle. And my dad became, you know, I think Richard and Martin were about the same age as my father, and they all became quite good friends around this time. So, and I, you know, and it came up in conversation. My dad was sort of, you know, was they were always telling everyone about the egg, want to make this egg, got to make this egg. Yeah. And um, and I so Richard and Martin said, oh, well, look, you know, we could introduce you to guile. They want, um, they might be up for putting some money behind it because they want a showcase for their pink diamonds. So this was in 1990. And like I said, back then, pink diamonds were not, um, didn't have the profile they had now. They were not highly thought of. They were seen as sort of yeah a bit um the color the hues were not appreciated in the way that they were sort of champagne hue but some of them were sort of like quite dirt you know dirty etc people didn't they weren't highly valued mm. so um the introduction to our guile is made um, my parents and the veiners um, go out to australia they visit the mine in the outback in the sort of northwest kimberley region of australia um I mean I, I'd love to go I know it's not functional anymore but I've seen pictures I and mean, it looks incredible my mother talks about the journey out there though in the small plane and oh. <laughs> She's like I was terrified I was gonna die um oh and, like, she and my dad actually on that trip people um what became his kind of his lucky hat he always said it was his lucky hat with corks on it which he then used to play tennis when uh when things were going badly on the tennis court he'd go and put this hat on oh, well. everyone would sort of go oh god no but yes <laughs> it was a they had a great trip um and the deal was done our girl were in on the egg they would supply two million dollars worth of pink diamonds for the egg um like i said the egg had twenty four thousand diamonds in total um you know, including a sort of really impressive white diamond on the top. And then the majority were pink diamonds. It was two foot tall, uh, 15 kilograms of gold. And um, it took 10 crafts, seven, well, somewhere between uh, 10, 10 months, I think. And there were seven craftsmen working on it full time. But I think up to about 40 came into contact with it in various um at various points basically working mm-hmm. on different bits you know with the hallmarking, getting the motors to work um yeah so that so that was that's sort of the genesis of the egg yeah. so then the designs were done sketches made um everyone was happy with it it went into production um my dad contracted a manufacturing firm who was sort of specialist in enamel and engine turning, which is the sort of the type of engraving okay. that's used. Faberge used it. it. It creates a um, a sort of geometric pattern on the egg surface okay. that repeats over. It gives it a kind of almost like sort of uh, Escher-like effect. Yeah, okay. um, and be, that's the that was sort of across the surface um and you to do that you have to use something called a rose machine i mean one thing i find fascinating when i'm looking into these techniques is that you know things like gold spinning which is effectively getting a flat sheet of gold which as we know is a very heavy and dense material yeah. and then shaping it into a 3d egg shape by putting it on a um on a bit and a massive metal machine across a wooden chuck and just somehow spinning it um, so that it starts to well when you speak to a goldsmith they say that they know it's working when the gold sings to them um and using this incredible technique at high 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 speeds to make the and to make the gold to shape it in that way basically Mm. so to take something that's sort of completely fat and make it into a 3d object um but what i find amazing is that all the machinery used to do this or used to do it back then was so big and hulking like the the metal lathe looks like a kind of massive sewing machine Mm -hmm. with this big wheel on the end and yet they produce these things at the end that are so exquisite and intricate um
0: you know it's really it's really fascinating so very remarkable and i think a a lot of these techniques now that were employed for the creation of the egg i think are they they're either extinct or or nearly extinct i would think are they which makes it even more special it does, yes. So,
1: I mean, so I mean, for a start, I suppose the the argyle diamonds are no longer produced. So obviously, the value of the pinks in the egg, which was two million in 1990, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in calculating that the worth, but I can only imagine the exponential growth in that. Yeah. Um, and the yes, so gold spinning, I mean, metal spinning still occurs, but on an object of that scale by hand, that wouldn't happen now. Um, Enamelling still happens on a small scale, but they did it in a sort of, um, in an old and more traditional way. Then um, the engine turning is definitely a very niche. There's only a few people left in Britain that do it. The the skill to set, what I've thought about a lot is the skill it would have taken to set all 24,000 diamonds. I mean, diamond setters are always seen as the kings of the workshop anyway. They always get paid more than anyone else, Um, which causes like, uh, you know, if you speak to a diamond mounter, they've usually got quite a lot to say about that. (laughs) Um, Because a mounter for the audience is someone that makes the structure of the you know say for example it's a ring they make the struct the gold or silver or platinum structure of the ring and they make the setting and then the setter you know in their eyes all the setter does is put the stone in but obviously handling precious stones and getting setting them with sort of laser-like precision um so yes I think one person alone sat put all the stones in which would have just been I just yeah what an incredible task and so scared of, I mean imagine if you dropped it oh, yeah so terrified yeah of yeah <laughs> I know <laughs>
0: because
1: my my father had gone through the stones himself and selected every single one oh. because he was that was his kind one of his main one of his big skills and talents was his father had passed on to him you know how do you tell a stone how do you Select the yeah. perfect stone, basically, in, ensure that all your stones are of the highest quality, the highest purity. Um, so he, my father, was very obsessed with that. So he hand selected every single stone Gosh. himself and passed them to the wow. setter. Um, so yeah, so engine turning. I'm just thinking of the techniques that we use. So it was metal spinning, engine turning for engraving, uh, obviously yeah. setting box making possibly for the in, for the interior so but it was a uh, two foot tall made from 18 karat gold um had twenty four thousand diamonds 15 the gold weighed 15 kilograms um and it was uh it was the, called the library egg because the idea was that the doors would open And inside, in the tradition, in the Fabergé tradition of always having a surprise within the egg, that was a part of Fabergé's signature um, style with his imperial eggs that he made for the Romanovs, which I know you've talked about in one of your earlier podcasts. We have, yeah. Um, We have, yeah. You know, so my father wanted to make sure that he was paying homage to Faberge as much as possible. You know, mm-hmm. in his use of enamel, coral, and blue enamels, very much Faberge colors, um, in the in the tradition of the surprise. But because of the size of the egg, because it was so big and very heavy, um, a clockwork mechanism like those used by Faberge to power to make his you know surprises pop up effectively wouldn't work, obviously. Yeah. Um, so in this case, it was a motorised mechanism. Um, wow! And the store, yeah, I know. Um, and it had these tiny engines, tiny motors hidden in the base um, of the of the egg. So. The idea was that you know you'd press a switch and uh, the sort of very exquisite exterior, which consisted of 48 panels, and within each panel there was a diamond and coral flower um, with engine turned engraving in the background. Um, these, pa- yeah, it's beautiful. All the and the pinks, the pink dye, di- the pink of the pink diamonds with the pink of the corals, just That's gorgeous. So And then the doors would sort of glide open, and what you'd see first would be a sort of dollhouse like, you know, imagine the most kind of extravagant dollhouse you've ever seen, I suppose, with shelves of uh, golden enamel books, um, diamond drawers, and there were just all the little touches were just so fantastic. And that's where you really can see my father's kind of obsessive creativity really coming into its own effectively, because each little drawer pulled out each little book came off the shelves and opened up and inside each book you'd open it and there was room to put a tiny photo so it was like a kind of locket um but inside a tiny book so and at the top of the library there was a a little um Kaczynski clock like you'd see in a watch face but a little diamond clock um just buried in there as well um you know it's funny I'm actually I'm not even looking at a picture of it while I'm talking to you because (laughs) it's so buried in my memory um and it's one of those things that when I go to sleep at night I see the egg um sort of there behind you know when you close your eyes and you're just about to fall asleep and you're not quite asleep um that's that's when I sort of see I can sort of see the light of the pink diamonds behind my eyes um But uh, yeah, so then it turns round and what you see when it, then it will rotate, basically automatically rotates. And on the other side, there's another surprise. And that surprise is a photo gallery, um, a portrait gallery, effectively, which is very much in the Fabergé tradition of concealing miniatures of loved ones within the eggs. Um, So in there, there would be pictures of... um, where you, where you could put you know pictures of your loved ones my father cut out uh apparently he wanted to commission miniatures in the Fabergé tradition but they ran out of time and budget oh. <laughs> so uh on like the night the night before the launch I think uh he and some you know so he and his co-workers were cutting pictures out of uh glossy history books and stuff to put <laughs> in the <friends. laughs>
0: Wow! I mean, you wouldn't know, good, but um, that's a great story.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's those little. It's just oh god, there's so many about the egg. Honestly, my mother was always, you know, very annoyed with the egg because when it went on tour, which it did, so it. um There was an exhibition of British craftsmanship at the V&A in Easter 1990. Okay. Yeah. And that was used as the sort of the egg's debut, if you like, the launch. Right. Um. And that launched it on the world, and then it went on tour um, around the world, showcasing it at events like the, Mal- the, Melbourne- the Melbourne Grand Cup, the racing event, it went on Good Morning America, it went to Japan, where it actually eventually ended up, as far as I know. Um, and there was a growing market for pink diamonds in Japan at the time. Um, so it went all around the world and my parents often went with it, but the egg would be up in first class, you know, with three seats, with two bodyguards and my parents would be back. Oh, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh gosh. <laughs> I After mean, all the passion you know, and work that your father put into it as well. <laughs> oh, the egg, the egg got to turn
1: left, as they say, but my parents, my parents didn't. <laughs> Um, I think it's fine I mean you know like, I think they were fine um, so but yeah I mean it's difficult how do you travel around the world with a 7 million pound egg well yeah you know, it, it's tricky. exactly yeah there was an, another incident actually when they took it to Munich or they flew to Munich because it was a they wanted to show it to a private client um, before the Bal fair I think um, anyway they wanted to show it to a private client at his chateau uh, in Bavaria and uh on and it was fine on the way out and then on the way back basically apparently my dad they were running late and my dad tried to get through customs and customs officials were like um you've got a box that's shaped like a small coffin and it's really heavy and you've got bodyguards with you what's in your box uh and my father was like you know I am not opening this box in the middle of the airport like no way because you know we're you know and they were like well you know effectively you know they were sort of saying if you don't show us what's in your box how are we going to know that it's not you know something illegal or a body or whatever you know worst case uh so some sort of standoff ensued anyway and they missed the plane um and then they had to get back to London for you know for because the egg had an appointment back in London so they had to charter a private
0: jet <laughs> oh my goodness me. Wow. Um, <laughs> what <yeah>. a story. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah, so they they had they had numerous adventures with this egg. <laughs> um yeah, a lot of adventures with uh, with the egg, yes. There were other occasions when it was still
1: um in like in process, not filmed, it was unfinished, when my dad had started I think he was paranoid about it getting stolen or you know something happening anyway for a while he took to carrying it around with him in a harrod's carrier bag um you know and which as friends of his always tell the story of him showing up at this dinner party with this carrier with the egg in the carrier (laughs) bag you know and then sort of having it at his feet and at one point kind of was worried that you know some diamonds had rolled out of the bag
0: and was on the floor under the table my goodness wow so (laughs) so uh there's all these great stories that happen um but ultimately you know sadly your father never benefited from it financially unfortunately no no he didn't know
1: um you know the business was sold um you know there were other there were other reasons obviously longer standing financial pressures but the obviously the sort of um the egg was the straw that broke the business's back, if you like, to use a terrible, uh, to, yeah. The, the egg was the final straw mm-hmm. for, for the business. Um, mm. And I think the problem was the Gulf War broke out the first gulf war and i remember it really vividly because it actually started on my birthday (laughs) 3rd of august and um i think we were on a family holiday in spain at the time and it was my birthday my father was just sort of glued to the tv looking like very doom laden and drinking vodka and orange um and went back to london quite soon after um but the timing of that was really bad because at this point obviously he was selling the the middle east market was the was very big for Objet. It's interesting because I think now, you know, what if the oligarchs had been a market then? The, you know, what if Russia had been the market yeah. then that it is now, and certainly yeah. was, you know, during the the you know from 2010s. Um, but that, that that they weren't there, so suddenly all the you know the the sort of key clients that would have been potentially interested in buying something like this were really busy protecting their you know they're at their homes, their their oil fields, their their wealth, their wives, their families. And they weren't, they stopped coming to Britain. They weren't coming and then no one was getting in. So that entire mm-hmm. market just dropped out overnight pretty much. Um, which hit the business in other ways, but also sort of took out a key market, you know, potential buyers for the egg. Um, and and then a recession hit as well in the you know at the start of the 90s. Um, there was beginning to be a bit of a reaction against extravagance and opulence. And I think, you know, the timing was just awful. Maybe if the business had lasted a bit longer, they might have been able to find a buyer. But other theories exist, which is interesting. You know, some people say that actually the amount of publicity that the egg had had at that time counted against it. um, Mm. Because if you are going to buy an item of such incredible value, do you really want the whole world to know about it? Um, you know, and that was one reason that was cited. Um, so yeah. And just that some of the, I spoke to someone that worked with my father on it and helped try to try him to try and sell it. And he sort of said, I always got the idea that your father, he made it for himself. <laughs> and that sounds egotistical, you know, and in some ways maybe it is, but it was his dream It was his vision, it was his ambition, and almost, I suppose, kind of probably freeing for him in a way to not be thinking about making it for a client or a customer. And they had, you know, there were other Rob Shades that they'd made and then sold them, you know, and found buyers for them, but nothing on this scale. It's the sort of piece that is probably more suited to being in a museum and being looked at by everyone rather than being locked away anyway so it didn't sell and the business was sold Argyle as far as I know took possession of it and then they eventually sold it to a Japanese client and what they have told me is that um it sits in the foyer of his chateau sort of French style chateau outside Tokyo in a glass cabinet in the foyer um, and you know, my dearest hope is to be able to see it again one day. And I'm hoping that by telling this story and writing the book, that I will, that I, you know, that will come true. I mean, in many ways, I don't need to see it again as well because it's it's with me. Yeah. Um, you know, and as a storyteller, what matters to me is you know, people knowing the story, and people understanding the craftsmanship, and knowing the sort of um, the creative legacy of what my father created. So,
0: you know, we'll see uh, how my egg hunt goes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and very finally, because I could talk to you forever, but very finally, perhaps, can you just tell us a bit more about the book? And and uh, when we can expect to, to see it, and yeah, how you found that whole process, or finding that whole process.
1: So basically, it's been an emotional process, and it's taken me time. Um, there have been points where I've like hit a wall with it, and the emotion of it and difficulty has been too much, and I needed to step back. I've also had two babies since I started wow. writing it, um, but my agent uh, was very pleased to say that he was well he sent me a very nice email the other day saying that he's really happy that it seems that 2021 will be the year of the egg book so um I'm not saying it's going to be out on shelves this year but uh
0: hopefully we we've made great progress well that's fantastic and I for one can't wait I will be I will be the first person to buy (laughs) thank you well That's partly
1: why we started the Instagram as well, actually, because I just want to, you know, I want this to be a book for everyone. I want it to be for people that are passionate about jewellery, for people that are passionate about history. I want it to be a family book as well, a family story that's relatable and emotional. And it's working out how to get all those layers together. So, you know. Uh, like this morning, I was in the shower, and I was thinking, right, jewellery history, jewellery history, this, this chapter's got to have those sort of the thread of jewellery history in it, and, you know, how do we start to talk about um, the history of how we adorn ourselves, and the tradition of that, and where does that come from, and stuff, so, yeah, so there's lots of, it's a sort of multi, the, the concept of it is a multi-layered memoir with, the story of the egg at the centre as the prison that drives it, basically. And then the background of British jewellery industry and also, you know, the British Jewish experience as well, kind of
0: underlying. That's so, so fascinating. I just, yeah, I think it's going to be a brilliant book. Just finally, Serena, just remind us of the Instagram handle for the Kaczynski's account.
1: Yeah, so the Instagram handle is at House of Kaczynski. And I do also post some stuff about it on my Twitter as well, which is at S. Kaczynski. That's a mixture of journalism and jewellery.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me, Serena, today. It's been fantastic speaking to you. And thank you so much for sharing your incredible family story with us. Thank you so much, Nicola. It's been an absolute pleasure, you know, and I hope the listeners will enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. You can see pictures of the egg and the Kaczynski family jewels on the Instagram site at House of Kaczynski. If you enjoyed this episode, please press subscribe, leave us a rating and review. Join us next time for the next episode of History Gems.